0: Hey, this is Matt Blois. I write and produce a lot of what you hear on Big Biology. It's been a few weeks since our last episode, so I just wanted to give you an update on what's been going on with the podcast. We recently registered the podcast as a nonprofit in Montana, and we're submitting an application to the IRS to make donations to the show tax deductible. We've been applying for grants. I recently moved to a different state, and Marty actually moved to Australia for a few months. It's all great news for us personally, but it has put us a little behind schedule. We're putting a bonus episode into the podcast feed today to tide you over until we get the next batch produced. It's a conversation Art and Marty had with the New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer about the future of biology. He's coming out with a new book later this year about heredity, and last month Art and Marty caught up with him at the annual meeting of the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology in San Francisco. He also writes a weekly column for the paper about some of the biggest stories happening in the world of science. To use arts words, he knows more about biology than many biologists. We should be back later this month with more stories about scientists asking big questions about biology. Here's the show. Scientists don't tend to think of their work as political or controversial. They set up their experiments and quietly pursue learning as much as they can about frogs or microbes or whatever else it is they study. But New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer
1: says that might be a problem. While that certainly may be what motivates them, the fact is that what they're doing uh, can be very controversial um, and actually a lot of the, the kind of work that gets done by biologists uh, who go to this meeting um, are, that's attacked by politicians as a way of um, going after what they see as government waste. Uh, and so, you know, like it or not, this is political. Biologists that study animals get criticized
0: especially often for projects that don't have any obvious benefit for humans. A cancer researcher can pretty easily point out why his or her research is important, but making a connection between animals and human well-being isn't always easy.
1: You know, and it takes time to explain like, well, actually, if you put shrimp on a treadmill, you can actually learn a lot of things about how shrimp work and actually shrimp are are like really important, ecologically speaking, and so on and so forth. I mean, like, if you have a little time to explain things to people, um, you can get that across, what, why it matters. The shrimp
0: example comes from a report that Republican Senator Jeff Flake puts out every year. It details examples of government waste, and it is always packed with puns. Last year, he titled the report, Porky Mongo.
1: But imagine if every member of Congress was as obsessed with searching for government waste as the players of the mobile game Pokemon Go are uh, obsessed with finding elusive Pokemon.
0: That's from a speech he made on the Senate floor in January of last year. It goes on and on like that. There's a pun in almost every sentence.
1: But instead of Pikachu, we're looking out for Porkachu.: But a big
0: portion of the projects in this report are basic science. In that speech, he criticized research funded by the National Institutes of Health investigating the drinking habits of college students, a NASA project that investigated the religious implications of finding extraterrestrial life,
1: and a study about monkey drool. The monkey business doesn't end there. NIH spent nearly $1 million to study the evolution of monkey drool. At face
0: value, those studies do sound ridiculous. But basic research like that often has a big payoff down the line. Take the Monkey Drool Study as an example. It studied how a gene that affects monkey saliva differs between different species and between individual monkeys of the same species. It found that the gene in one monkey species looked very different from the same gene in another species. Different parts of the gene likely evolved to combat specific problems. One part of the gene evolved to help get an important protein out of the cell and into the spit. That part looked mostly the same between species, because they all need to get that protein into their spit. But other parts of the gene helped saliva deal with fungus, or bind to microbes. Different monkeys had to fight different microbes, so those parts of the gene looked different from species to species, even though they did basically the same thing. This is also the same gene that tells our bodies how to make molecules in our own saliva that bind to microbes. In other words, it's part of our defensive system against pathogens. What's really powerful about this study, though, is that it shows us how some genes evolve. This is important because that very same mechanism is at work in other genes directly related to human health. For example, one of the genes that may help explain why some kids have attention deficit disorder. If you zoom out, you can see how studying something like monkey drool can help you understand our own brains. But if you stay focused on the image of a shrimp on a treadmill, you might miss that. The treadmills really drive these politicians crazy for some reason. And for Senator Flake, it always seems to come back to the treadmills.
1: But the fishiest study of all tested how long a fish can run on a treadmill.
0: That sounds funny, but this is a serious issue for scientists. Yesterday, the Trump administration released a budget proposal for the next year calling for a nearly 30% cut to the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. The bill passed by Congress last week to end the brief government shutdown increased the amount of money that the White House could spend. So it immediately followed up that proposal with a letter restoring most of that money. The letter described running a government like managing a family budget. Sometimes there are things that you want but can't afford. For the Trump administration, scientific research falls into that category. Carl Zimmer says that doesn't bode well for scientists doing basic research.
1: I think that uh, right now there uh, are a lot of of, uh, impacts on scientific research that are really uh, concerning, um, especially any science that is getting in the way of the oil industry. So if you study how releasing fossil fuels is uh, affecting the climate, especially if you are a government scientist, you're really concerned. So that's how bad things have gotten. Um, If you study uh, species to try to uh, ensure that they avoid extinction... Um, So let's say the sage-grouse, and then that sage-grouse happens to be in the way of some sort of, you know, natural gas exploration. Well, guess what? Um, Years of scientific research are now being pushed aside so that the Department of Interior can quote-unquote review the sage-grouse situation.
0: While most conservative politicians might not want to pay for the research studying animals, most people do get excited about the kinds of things they see on David Attenborough documentaries. But Carl Zimmer said that kind of passive support might not be enough.
1: I've written lots of stories about organismal biology and like really getting into those scientific questions that are driving scientists. And I've written books about them. And um, I, you know, keep getting more assignments. Like my editors say like, this, this is good. And this our readers like this. But uh, to think that that somehow solves all these other problems like politicians um, attacking uh, this research I don't I I I just don't see that as being sufficient.
0: One way that scientists doing basic research on evolution or animals can get around this problem
1: is by joining forces with the people who are doing applied research. You know there are opportunities where organismal biologists can tap into um, other areas of science where things might be um, you know, things might be going perhaps better. Uh, so, um, you know, like it, it, for, for people who study cancer, for example, um, you know, there's just a huge amount of research that goes on in cancer, huge amount of funding for research on cancer, both government funding and foundation funding. Um, but a lot of cancer research is really kind of, uh, I guess you could say, evolutionarily naive. So they might say, like, oh, we'll just study some mice and we'll just see what happens. And, you know, like, we're not mice and, and, you know, we're separated by not just a lot of evolutionary time, but a lot of evolutionary pressures so that, you know, mouse biology is, is really different than us. At the
0: conference Art and Marty were at in San Francisco, Carl met a scientist who studies cystic fibrosis. He said he couldn't use mice to study that disease because even if they have cystic fibrosis, mice don't really get lung infections. They spend a lot of their lives underground, breathing in
1: lots of dust, so their lungs are fairly resistant. So, you know, you know, for evolutionary biologists and people who study animals, like they'd be like, oh, well, yeah, well, like, you know, hello, welcome to Organismal Biology. <laughs> that doesn't mean we
0: should stop studying animals and focus entirely on humans. It means that the people who study animals should probably work with the people studying human diseases because they
1: understand how humans are different from mice. I, I would hope there would be a lot more research along those lines, and that's a place where organismal biologists have a whole lot to bring to the table because you know cancer biologists, you know frankly like they just don't know about this stuff at all. They're lucky if they know about mice. Understanding evolution
0: matters for scientists trying to cure human diseases because where we came from has a big impact on how our bodies work now. But it's also important because many of the germs that make us sick are also evolving very quickly.
1: You know, antibiotic resistance is just one big old evolutionary experiment. And, um, you know, evolutionary biologists right now are the ones who are actually have all the good ideas about how to deal with it.
0: Right now, many scientists are focused on collecting as much data as they possibly can to solve problems like cancer or antibiotic resistance. The tools for collecting that kind of data have improved dramatically in the last few decades, which makes it much easier to get. But if scientists don't have a way to understand what that data
1: means, it won't have much of an impact. You know, and it's too bad in a sense because, I mean, there's so much, there's so much data that's just gushing out now, and it would be nice to have really powerful theories that organize them well, but, you know, it's not really, it's not really happening. It's the
0: theories that explain what all these new numbers mean that really move science forward. And it's
1: a lot harder to come up with those explanations. I see this happening a lot um, in genomics, you know, for example. Like, they're up now to, like, 800 genes now, which account for, I I think it's about a quarter or a third of the variation in height. So, you know, like the, so, so, and, and, you know, there've been these scientists who said like, well, actually, like if we really drill down into the, the fine details of those studies, like it's likely that there are probably several, a couple million sites in the genome that are associated with height. So like at that point, you gotta be like, okay, we need something more than just another catalog. We need another concept for explaining how a trait like height is related to what's going on in the genome.
0: At the same time, it's important for scientists to avoid jumping to conclusions too quickly. When there's so much data available, it's easy to find a data set that fits with a pet theory. With more numbers, there's just a bigger chance that you will find the pattern you're looking for. But often, those patterns don't really explain how the world
1: works. Well, the microbiome is a really interesting example of, of what happens in science these days. So because, um, you know, we've known since the days of Leunuch that like we've got bacteria in us or or little things living inside us, we animalcules, as they called them. But just recently, in the scheme of things, past 10 or 20 years, it became possible to survey those microbes without having to actually grow them on a plate.
0: So scientists started using this new technology to discover all the different microbes that live in our guts.
1: As soon as those results started coming out, I and other reporters jumped on these, these results because it was just fascinating. Like, saying like, oh my gosh, like, here are all these things that are, that are living in your gut. And here are the patterns that you see when you compare one person to the next.
0: And as the results started coming in, scientists started coming up with ways to explain what they meant. In 2011, a group of scientists published a paper in Nature where they analyzed the microbes living in people's guts. Based on the types of microbes living in their guts, they found that people generally fell into three categories.
1: And they said, they said We're gonna, these are almost like blood types. We're going to call them enterotypes. Entero meaning, you know, your gut.
0: The idea was that people with different types of microbes in their guts would process food and drugs differently, which could have important implications for diets or prescribing drugs. But it turned out that when scientists started looking at larger groups of people,
1: these distinct categories of microbes didn't really exist. Those supposedly distinct enterotypes start to fade or blur into each other until you get to the point where you can't see any real distinct types at all.
0: For Carl, this was an example of scientists getting excited about having lots of data and jumping to conclusions too quickly. As a science journalist, it's a lesson he takes really seriously.
1: You know, I, I so I'm still reporting on the microbiome these days, but I'm very um, uh, careful about not letting myself get too carried away with all of it and like what it means and what the latest study portends and so on. That was our conversation with Carl Zimmer. He's a science writer
0: for the New York Times, and he has a book about heredity coming out in May. If you want to hear Art and Marty's full conversation with Carl. You can find it on our website, bigbiology.org, or you can find it in this podcast feed. We'll be back later this month with stories about scientists asking some of the big questions in biology. Music on today's episode was from Pottington Bear, Lache Swing, and Kevin McLeod.